Hey, what's up, everybody? Mike D from Son of a Witch Podcast. I'm back, and I can't be happier. It has been way too fucking long, almost a year, and there's a lot of reasons as to why, and I'm going to kind of catch you all up on that. But first, hi. It's nice to be back. It's nice for you to be listening again. Nice for me to be recording for you again. So welcome to Season 4 of Son of a Witch Podcast. I'm, again, super ecstatic. I've got so many things that I want to fill everybody in on, catch everybody up on. But I, if I did that all at one time, it would take an entire episode. So I'm going to kind of break that up over the course of a few episodes and kind of fill you in on what's been going on behind the scenes here at Son of a Witch Studios. So basically, for a while, I was really busy with work. If you've listened to the show in the past, you probably have heard me mention that I am a voice actor, and I was getting a lot of projects. I was working a lot, and because of that, traveling a lot. That all came to a crashing halt when uh, the strikes happened. Fully support uh, the reason that these strikes were going on, one of them still, and uh, but we're not going to dive into that. So there was that, and then also there were a lot of things changing in my life uh, in really, really fantastic ways. Lots of new updates, uh, lots of big things that happened, and I'm going to kind of tease that along as we go, but uh, really, really good stuff. I was working behind the scenes a bit on Son of a Witch, as well as The Apothecary. You may remember, you could be sitting there going, well, what the hell, Mike? I, I thought it was Dark Woods Witchery, and, and it was. Now it's Big Island Witchery, and there's a reason for that. And if you're crafty, you may be able to figure that out. However, Big Island Witchery has kind of taken on its own uh, life, so to speak. And that is going to be online until we get a brick-and-mortar shop open. Uh, which we are working on. But for now, it's going to be the same things. Milk baths, bath teas, body butters, you know, roll on things for like headache and acne and things of that nature. Uh, Custom spell jars. Also going to be some potions and brews that you can uh, get and even have custom made as well. So lots and lots of things. The brick and mortar shop is going to be really cool. line of magical blended teas that I'm going to offer in my shop. And uh, we'll be kind of announcing the name of that line uh, as we go on into the season. So lots of big things happening. Now, I do have to say that... It is, if you're listening on Sunday or Monday, I think this is going to come out on Sunday, hopefully. Um, But if you're listening, then you are celebrating Samhain, my favorite Sabbath, and one of what I feel to be our holiest nights. Um, There's a lot that goes on there, a lot of things that I'm going to talk about in this episode. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you probably have heard Samhain Special Part 1 from Season 1. I think it was episode 10 and that I did a deep deep dive covering Samhain we talked about the history of it different things that you could do to kind of celebrate Samhain ways that you could reach out to ancestors and loved ones and I even had my cousin on the show who his wife is from Japan her family lives there she was raised there 
And we talked about yurei and yokai, demons and monsters in Japan. We talked about the suicide forest, different haunted sites, the Japanese equivalent to a spirit board. We talked about a lot of things. We also talked about Ghost of Charleston, South Carolina. We talked about seances with our grandmother when we were teenagers. And uh, one of those accounts that we went over on the show was really interesting because it involved a table shooting across the room. So if you haven't listened to that yet, I encourage you to do so at your leisure. It's a really interesting episode and still to this day in the top re-rated episodes of Son of a Witch podcast. Now, the cool thing that I want to cover right now is that I'm super excited. Even with almost a year between last season and this, I feel like I'm Netflix now. (laughs) But even with almost a year between, the show is still getting daily listens. The show is now in 69 countries, and it's just growing and growing and growing, albeit slowly compared to what it used to, but that's about to change because... We're back to our weekly production, folks. So all that coming now, because I'm not doing a deep dive into Samhain for this episode, I'm going to be covering another topic that I really, really love. And I've taken a recent interest again in it, and that is potion and brew making. And we're going to cover different ways that you can do that in what I call, you know, in air quotes, modern times. You you can use glass, enamel pots, whatever. Also going to cover the traditional iconic method for witches to brew their potions and brews, and that is in a cast iron cauldron. Let me clarify, a food safe (laughs) cast iron cauldron. And we're even going to talk about how to care for that, how to get it ready, how to maintain it, etc. So lots of really cool things that we're going to be covering on this episode. Again, so fucking happy to be back on the air and talking into my microphone for all of you. Got lots of really cool topics coming this season, lots of really cool guests lined up, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So here we go. Hey, we're back. Okay, so real quick, uh, being the first episode of the season, I want to just, I normally have to do this about once in each season that I've done thus far. And a lot of times I make it into kind of like an entire episode. I'm not going to do that this time because I have done that uh, before in the past. If you want to, I believe, and I'll have to double check, I've put out so many, but I believe it was called Christmas, Yule, and a Partridge in a Pear Tree. That was season one. I did an episode that kind of explained, and I'll probably re-air that, but it kind of explained the differences in pagan and Christian culture specifically. The reason I had done that episode was because at the time I had some people in my life directly that were kind of, um, I don't know, pushing back a little bit on uh, the holidays and I'm not going to dive down that rabbit hole. But anyway, I had done this episode and it more or less kind of broke down in great detail with factual references to the Bible or whatever, as far as how the pagan Sabbaths holidays had been taken, stolen and rebranded into the Christian secular holidays. And The reason I did that was just to kind of prove my point that one, you know, we're not bad. But two, one of my favorite parts of that was pointing out that it actually says in the Bible that you're not to take a tree from the forest, bring it inside, decorate it, etc. But 
anyway, I digress. So I normally end up having to do an episode, like I said, every season. And one of the reasons I'm saying this is this season in particular, I may have a small group of people listening that are listening not because they're interested in the show or that they even believe in witchcraft, but they're listening in hopes that they may hear me, you know, saying something, calling them out by name, things like that. I'm not going to do that. Um, Anybody that's listened to my show long enough knows that I try to keep it as chill and laid back as possible. I did used to have a segment called What's Flicking My Wand and Boiling My Cauldron. Flicking My Wand being things that I kind of was digging, whether it be a shop I had found or an item or product or a service or whatever. And Boiling My Cauldron was things that were kind of irking me. And a lot of times it was things in the community that I just felt were kind of not really talked about but needed to be addressed. And I've done that over the years. I may end up bringing that segment back. But other than that, I really don't like my show to be stressful or ranty or anything like that. Um, And it's not going to be. I don't talk about politics on my show for that very reason. I have definite, definite stances that I take, whereas politics are concerned. But I don't bring that into this show because that's not what this show is about. I'm also a good person. I'm, I'm not going to try to tear someone down just because they're doing the same to me. I actually posted a meme this week on the Big Island Witchery page that was talking about, you know, someone had picked up a snake that was in a fire and was burning to death. Well, the snake bit the person. They dropped it back into the fire, but instead of just walking away, they went and found a stick so that they could pull safely the snake out of the fire. And when someone asked, look, that snake bit you, why did you do that? Because that is the snake's nature to bite me. My nature is to help others. All that to say, I'm not gonna get into that. I'm not gonna bring myself down to that level. I'm not going to be mean because people are mean to me. But I will say this real briefly, witches, we don't sacrifice animals. We don't sacrifice humans. We we don't do that. Now, has that happened many, many hundreds of years ago in the past? Probably. As a matter of fact, I know it did. But then I also know that in the Bible, it states in the Old Testament that people sacrificed animals to appease God. And so it's no different than that. The things used to be done a certain way. They're not done anymore. I don't know anyone that sacrifices anything in any of the spell work or anything they do. Speaking of spell work, spells are like concentrated prayers. I also made another post with a meme that kind of broke it down. You know, Christians call it prayers, witches call it spells. And it kind of gave different cultures and what they call it. It's all pretty much the same thing. Spells for us, yes, sometimes we do it in a ritualistic way, meaning that we cast a circle and You know, we may stand over an altar and we may drink from a chalice. We may say certain words. We may light some candles. But again, I'll reference back to Catholicism, for example. Very, very ritualistic. And they do a lot of the same things. They typically have an altar up at the front. They drink from a chalice, you know, the Lord's Supper, for example. They do a lot of the same things, lighting candles, saying certain things, chanting. 
it's no different. And that's that's what we do when we do spells. It's like concentrated prayers. As far as are witches bad or evil or constantly lobbing hexes and curses at people, I'm not going to say that there aren't some witches that do bad things, that use what they know for negative purposes. But again, and it just happens to be the same one, I have nothing against Catholicism, but again, in Catholicism... Priests do inappropriate things with altar boys. You know, again, anyone can abuse power that they have. Doesn't mean that all priests are bad. Doesn't mean that the Catholic Church is all bad. Doesn't mean that witches are all bad because some witch out there somewhere may have put a curse or a hex on someone. On that note, I will say that doing hexes or curses are not something that's very easy to do. It requires a lot, and you typically, most people I know kind of follow a threefold rule. Not everyone does, and that's okay, but a lot do, or they follow a karmic responsibility, and they're not going to do things just willy-nilly like that because they don't want anything coming back on them. Now, are there certain types of things people can do? To kind of get people to leave them alone or to go away or whatever of course but that is typically again everyone i know not something that is done just off the bat normally if that is the case it's say a situation where someone is being abused whether it be emotionally or physically and all avenues have been tried legal methods have been tried not worked everything else there are things you could do not necessarily to hurt the other party, but to make them go away, to sour their feelings towards that person, to give them something else to desire, to, you know, basically get out of the situation and help the person in need, things like that. So it's not something that's done often. I have never done a hex or a curse, and most people don't. So there's that. As far as the big one, people think that witches are devil worshipers or that we get our power from satan or you know anything like that no no and i'll be honest and i'm thinking right now if i can remember one that doesn't but i every witch i know and i know hundreds don't really believe in satan the the thing is people think oh well you know if you're a witch you follow satan it means you either hate or don't believe in god not true, at least not for me. I was raised in a Christian Southern Baptist family, 99.9% of it. I did have some family that were not, and that's part of what I learned from. But the majority of my family, the majority of my friends were all Christian. It will blow some people's minds to know that at one point, I had considered seminary. I mean, this was back... People have heard me talk about how theology has always been one of my loves and still is. But during my teenage years, I read about any culture and any religion I could get my hands on so I could make an educated guess. And it was right before all that began that this was happening. But all that to say, I've read the Bible front to back numerous times. I was raised going to vacation Bible school and in small churches where a lot of what kind of led me, and I'll get into that too, but anyway, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But yeah, I mean, I, I do believe in God. 
I just don't believe God is the only deity. I believe it's about the same as saying, yeah, we're the only intelligent life in the entire universe. Aliens can't exist. That's extremely arrogant thinking. I think it's extremely arrogant as well to say, well, God is the only God. And all these other cultures follow all these other deities and have all these other beliefs. You're all wrong because ours is the only one. I think that's extremely arrogant. So yes, let me be very clear. I do believe in God, the Christian God, but I also believe in lots of gods and goddesses as well. I don't follow Satan. I don't believe in Satan because if you're polytheistic, which means you do kind of observe and honor and work with other deities, we work with these deities because if you look at mythology that talks about them, they're like us. They have flaws as well as, you know, attributes. And that is why we don't have to create something that is all evil and all bad just because we don't also on that token have anything that's all good. Our deities are very much like us. And and I know, let me say this if you're listening, I know that the reason you, and I'm saying you for anyone that thinks this way, feel that way is because of media, books and TV shows and movies and, you know, things like that. I had one person tell me, well, you know, I, I know that that's not true. I know that, it, you know, you believe in Satan, blah, blah. Who told you that? My pastor. Well, come on now. I mean, let's, let's be honest. If you talk to a Christian pastor, of course, they're not going to, and I won't say definite, but I would say probably nine out of every 10 are not going to be completely fair about history in the past and everything else. They're going to paint that picture because that's the picture they've had painted for them. If you do a little bit of research, and that's all I ask of anyone, do a little bit of research, see that witches are out there doing great things for people. I am part of a tradition, and I know many others that aren't even part of a tradition that do the same, that constantly send healing and comforting energy to people we oftentimes don't even know that ask for help. We are constantly trying to help others. Yes, we can use magic to better our own lives and to benefit ourselves, but most witches I have ever known and currently know, including myself, also go to great lengths to try and help others and to help the earth and nature itself. So. No, we don't believe in Satan. No, we don't sacrifice. No, we don't kidnap babies and steal their life force. No, we don't sign our name in the dark book of Satan. No, we don't get our powers from Satan. No, we don't worship Satan. Witches are good people who know how to use the energy that exists around us in every single thing. We know how to wield that and mold it and make our lives better and make other people's lives better. That is what magic is. We're not evil. We're not cackling as we try to plot against, you know, other people. Uh, it's not like that. And the way of thinking of, well, you believe in something that I don't believe in. That means you're wrong. And since you are a witch, that means you're evil. That type of thinking is the mass hysteria that started 
the times of the witch trials. And just to touch on that, since I'm giving you a little bit of a history lesson, and then we're going to end this segment, the witch trials, FYI, were started primarily by children. These children were kind of mad at another adult, and that is what started this. That There's tons of theories, but yes, children were the original accusers of the witches during the witch trials. And children can say all types of things because they don't know any better oftentimes. So during the witch trials, it, it was women, it was children, it was men that were murdered, tortured, and killed. Now, back during those times, what we call witches now were wise people. They were people who may not fit into a peg in society, in air quotes, but they knew all about herbs. They knew about ways to heal in natural ways. It's called homeopathic now. It still exists. And they were doing this, selling these potions or these brews or these salves or, you know, creams or whatever else to help people, giving them methods that could clear up, you know, if they were congested or things like that. Things that now have actually become actual medicine. That's what witches were. They weren't doing anything wrong. And anyway, I'm not going to go down that, but those are just a little bit of things. And I highly, highly, highly suggest that you Google and research and don't just look at Christian websites and stuff like dig into it. Look into the past, look into Celtic origins, look into the origins of witchcraft and what modern day witches, even what olden time witches do and did and educate yourself before you judge someone. The, the bottom line and the last thing I'm going to say about this is, and it applies to this situation that I am recording this little bit for, and this also applies if you know someone in your life that looks at you in a different way, especially if they once had no problem with you, but now not even really knowing much about you look at you differently because they know that you're pagan or a witch or a druid or a shaman, then listen to this and have them listen to it. You know, challenge them in a good way. Don't stoop to the level that they're coming at you with. Don't get angry. Don't get hostile. Challenge them after you've said these things or had them listen to these things to go and further research, to see for themselves that people aren't out there doing anything wrong. Wicca, which not all witches consider themselves to be, but Wicca is a recognized and protected religion by the federal government. So please, 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 if you know someone, have them listen to it, challenge them, but be kind, be loving to them, because then they can't come back and say, well, see, that's the type of person a witch is. Show them the love and generosity and care that we show ourselves and that we try to show others. It applies to a world lens, what I'm about to say. You don't have to like, believe, approve of certain things that people do. But if you like that person as a person, especially if you did before you knew any of those things, don't let that sour that. If it is not hurting them, it is not hurting me, and it makes them happy, why the fuck do I give a shit what they're doing? And that is my suggestion to anyone. If you don't like that someone's a witch, if you don't like that someone is a druid, if you don't like that someone is Hindu or Christian, hell, if you don't like the color of someone's skin, if you don't like that they're LGBTQ, it doesn't matter what you don't like. 
if they are a good person and you can get along and be friends with them, you're not expected to like everything and approve of everything everyone does. If the world consisted of only people that thought, believed, and did the exact same things, it would be a fucking miserable, boring place to live. So stop thinking that that person does something that I don't like or that I don't agree with or I don't understand, and that means I can't like them. That's bullshit, and it's closed-minded thinking. And that's all I have to say about that. Now on to the next segment. Hey, everybody. Mike D. from Son of a Witch Podcast. So I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the apothecary that I've been working on. Some of you may remember it as Dark Woods Witchery. It is now Big Island Witchery, and there's a very important reason for that that we'll get into later on in this season. Big Island Witchery, you can find it on Facebook and pretty soon going to have its own dedicated website. And that is an online magical apothecary where you can buy magically handmade and infused items by by myself, such as bath teas, milk baths, body butters, all sorts of amazing things. And I'm going to be offering that online initially, but soon, probably, hopefully within about a year, I'm going to have a brick and mortar shop and it's going to be amazing. So check it out, Big Island Witchery. If you ever have any need for something and you want to know if I can make it, if I do make it, if I have it already made, then let me know and I'll be more than happy to help. All right, back to the show. And we're back. So this segment here is going to be talking about Samhain briefly. Uh, Again, if you want like kind of a deep dive into the history and all sorts of rituals and things that you can do with that, uh, season one, episode 10, Samhain special is the episode you want to listen to. But right now, I'm just going to kind of go over a brief history of what Samhain is in case someone listening is not familiar, maybe new to the path. And that way we can kind of catch everyone up to speed. So basically Samhain, and it's pronounced like S-O-W and then W-I-N, not Samhain, irritates the hell out of me when people say that. And on that note, let me talk about this. So I'm all for, I love movies, I love TV shows. You've heard me say on here before that I do steer clear of some things because it just paints a really super negative picture. Now, chilling Adventures of Sabrina is one of those shows. I mean, if they could get something wrong or mess it up and give people the wrong idea about pagans and witches, then they probably did. But somehow, when I had watched it back when it came out, I didn't catch like three episodes in, Father Blackwood of the Black Church pronounces Samhain as Samhain. And I was like, yep, I'm out. (laughs) I'm done. Uh, But anyway, sorry, I got sidetracked there. So it's pronounced like that. It's a pagan religious festival, Celtic origins. It's a a spiritual celebration celebrated typically October 31st and November 1st. And it kind of served several purposes. It welcomed the end of the harvest, the end of summer. It was the pagan new year. It was also the start of winter, which was associated with death. So it it kind of represented a lot of different things. Now, most of us, myself included, understand and believe that the veil is at its thinnest during that time of October 31st and November 1st. So if you had any desire or intentions of speaking to like a deceased loved one or an ancestor or something like that, 
now's the time to do that. There's numerous ways you can do it. You can do it through tarot, you can do it through spirit boards, you can do it through seances. Uh, you can just commune with them uh, and do some spell work or just some meditation at an ancestor altar, which I'm going to kind of briefly go over how to make one of those also. So, but yeah, it was uh, basically just allowed humans a little more interaction than normal with the other side. It was also considered to be the most significant of the four quarterly fire festivals. And during that time of the year around Samhain, people would let the hearth fires in their homes burn out while they were harvesting you know, all the food and everything else and gathering everything up. And then when they were done, they would have this massive party. I mean, a huge celebration. Druid priest would light a community fire, a lot of times using what was like a wheel that could cause uh, sparks and, you know, throw off sparks and flames. The wheel was considered a representation of the sun used along with prayers. The celebrants would take part of that fire home with a torch or something like that, and that's what they would use to relight their hearth fire in the home. It brought good luck. It kept away evil spirits. Uh, there were several reasons why they would do all these things. And... It was also, by some early texts, considered to be a mandatory celebration. There are some texts that kind of lead you to believe that it lasted for about three days and three nights. You would have to present yourself to, like, whoever the local king or chief or whatever was in that area. And if you didn't, you could suffer illness or death from, you know, the gods. There was a military kind of aspect to it as well. Uh, typically, fighting would kind of cease if there was any. Holiday thrones were prepared for like commanders and things like that. And if you were caught doing anything illegal during that time, you could suffer a death sentence. And then there are some other texts that I read back in the day that even mentioned that it was like six days of drinking alcohol in definite excess. Um, mead, beer, stuff like that. A really heavy, just gluttonous feast of, you know, all sorts of comfort foods and things like that. So that's, in a nutshell, what Samhain is. As far as, like, what you can do to celebrate it, there are all sorts of things. You can make food and celebrate with your family and loved ones. Typically, the food of choice is, like, comfort food, roast and baked birds and you know all sorts of different uh, potatoes and breads and pies and everything else now i am going to give you a recipe that i have used in the past and it's really good actually but uh it's basically i think it was called a sawan bread recipe it's not my recipe it's by deb summers cooper but uh it was something i found online a while back and uh tried it out and it was really good so it's going to be enough for about, like, I'd say maybe six people. Uh, it takes you about 10 minutes-ish to get it ready, and then about 35 minutes total. So basically, and if you want to write this down and try it, go ahead, and I'll give you a brief moment to grab a writing utensil. All right. So uh, you're going to need four cups of white flour, a half teaspoon of kosher salt, teaspoon of baking soda, a teaspoon of caraway seeds, two cups of buttermilk, two tablespoons of garlic oil, about a handful of rye flour, 
teaspoon of poppy seeds, you're going to use that to sprinkle on. A teaspoon of pumpkin seeds, same thing. And a sprig of rosemary for remembrance. A black or purple ribbon. And a greaseproof paper for wrapping, like, you know, wax paper or something like that. Now, directions. You're going to combine the flowers, the salt, and the baking soda. And with a sift or a sieve, you're going to sift that into a bowl. You're going to stir in the caraway seeds, shake the buttermilk well, and then mix with the garlic oil in a container. Pour into a well in the center of the flour. So you're going to pour that liquid, kind of hollow out a little hole in the center of the flour. Leave a little of that mixture for glazing. And then you're going to mix with your hands until it feels kind of springy. Turn it onto a floured board and cover it with a fine dusting of flour. Turn and pat with your hands until you have a round shape. You're going to glaze the top of that with that little bit of buttermilk and oil mixture that you left over and then sprinkle seeds over that. And then you just place it on a greased tray, pop it into the center of an oven at 450 for about 20 minutes-ish and just keep an eye on it. And when it's ready, it'll change color, sound kind of hollow when you tap the bottom. And you're going to let that cool a little bit Take your rosemary, place across the top, secure it with a ribbon, and then you're going to turn your Samhain bread three times and say, from the fields, through the stones, and into fire, Samhain bread, as the wheel turns, may all be fed. So that's something that you can use uh, with your Samhain feast if you decide to do something like that. Um, it's, it's, again, really good. I like it, but you're also kind of imbuing magic into that. You can even put other intent into it. Let's say you want to honor an ancestor or a loved one. You know, you can be thinking about that or chanting about that as you're kneading and turning this dough, getting it ready to go into the oven. Uh, so that's also a really good way to do that. What you could also do is what's called a dumb supper. And it doesn't mean unintelligent or anything like that. A dumb supper, the word dumb in that sense means silent, more or less. But a dumb supper is where you would prepare your Samhain feast. It doesn't have to be anything specific food-wise or drink-wise. Typically, every Samhain feast I've ever made or been to typically has like harvest-type vegetables and things. You know, pumpkins, apples, game hens, turkeys, things like that. So you can kind of make whatever menu you want. If you do decide to have a dumb supper, a lot of people will decorate the table with a black cloth. They may even go out and get, I mean, I know somebody that went out and bought actual black china and flatware, but you can go and get, especially this time of year, they have, you know, kind of plastic disposable plates or things like that. I do recommend if you do that, try to get something that you can wash and reuse so it doesn't go into the trash and kind of add to what's already on the planet already. So for a dumb supper, you could decorate like that. And what you would do is you would seat anyone attending and you would leave the head of the table open for the spirit that is being honored. If you have room at a big enough table, say you're honoring two or three or even more, it's ideal to have a place setting for each ancestor, spirit, loved one that is being honored. It doesn't have to be, though. If you have too many and there's just not enough space, at the head of the table, you could substitute a white um, tea light candle to honor each different loved one that you're celebrating. Now, what would happen is everyone would come in, and once you entered that dining area, you would be silent. You would stop at the spirit chair, 
you would say a prayer or some sort of message for whoever that you are there for, and then you would take your seat. The host or hostess would sit at the opposite end of the table, and they would serve everyone, starting with oldest to youngest. And once everyone is served, you don't eat until everyone is served, including the spirits, and then you would eat in silence and reverence, and you would think about the good times you had with them, you know, the love that you share for them. The reason that you're being silent is because one, it's respectful, it's reverent. Two, this is a time of year where you could very possibly get messages from the person that you're trying to celebrate or honor. And if everyone is having conversations, telling jokes, laughing, you're not gonna be tuned in to really hear that or get that message in whatever way it's delivered. So that's one reason. When everyone is done eating, everyone would silently get up, leave one at a time out of the dining room, stopping at the chair on the way out. Sometimes people will bring in like a petition paper and they'll have something that they, a message they want to send to that loved one. And on their way out, they will stop at their place setting. Or again, if you're using the candles in one spot, they would stop there. They would light that petition paper, be reverent, and then drop that into a cauldron or whatever fireproof receptacle you have, and then file on out of the room. Now, I do know people, that's the way I was always taught to do it, and that's the way I like to do it. But I do know people that have had what they consider a party for their ancestors. It's like a dumb supper. They have a place setting. They feed them. They get a portion of the food just like anyone else. And then they basically just hang out, tell stories about them, share memories of them. So either way, there's no really right or wrong way to do it. Uh, there is what I believe to be kind of the original way, but you can do whatever works for you. So that is one way you can do that. Now, I have had people say, well, what do you do with the food that you had for the spirit when it's all said and done? Normally, I leave it in that spot until the end of the evening. And then at the end of the evening, I'll go out, toss that into a certain spot out in the yard. That way it's kind of going back into nature. It you know, may serve something else out there, but you, know, you wanna leave it there because I know my grandmother would eat slow. So, you know, if I took it away too fast, she might not be happy with me. So I just leave it there and then I dispose of it like I would a spell or something like that when I'm done. So that's uh, some ways that you can celebrate Samhain. There's tons of methods you can use. There's tons of spells out there. If you do uh, follow Big Island Witchery on Facebook and if you're part of the group in that page, I do share, you know, I think I have shared some spells and things like that that you can use to kind of go with that. I will be on the website posting some correspondence, some different things that, you know, kind of go hand in hand and alignment around Samhain itself as well. Having said that, I'm going to take another brief pause and I will be right back. All right, and we made it to the final segment of this episode. So I'm, again, so excited that I'm recording again. I'm really happy to be doing this, and I can't wait because I've already got tons and tons and tons of topics lined up 
on tap that are going to be coming very soon. So, but without further ado, as I said before, this week's topic is going to be on something that not, I've been a witch for over 30 years and I don't know very many people I could possibly count on one hand that personally anyway, that work with potions and brews magically. I know lots of like homeopathic places all natural herbal remedies, things, tinctures, things like that, that are made. But as far as like brewing magical potions and brews, I don't know that many people that do it because it's not really talked about a lot. Um, you can't really find as readily information on that as you can on other magical tools and methods. And I, I'm not really quite sure why, because it was definitely a part of the pagan history, the witch history. It was definitely something that was done and has been done throughout the years. We'll talk a little bit about the history of cauldrons specifically and some notable ones that have been unearthed. Um, some of them you can tell were being used in a magical sense. So again, I'm, I'm not quite sure why you can find some text that have recipes for different potions. And I'm actually going to go over some of those. They're really interesting. But yeah, I, I don't know what the reason for that is. But I do love potion making and brew making. It's a lot of fun. It can be done in a what I call an air quotes a modern sense, like on your stove, in your kitchen, either using like a glass pot or an enamel pot or even a coffee maker and I'll go over that too but um, yeah it's just something I really love and it's a very 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 effective method of magic uh, potions and brews are just anyway we'll get into some of that too and I'm going to give you some names of some books that I really love on the topic and um, yeah, so let's dive right in. Okay, so potions and brews. I mean, think about it. You know, the iconic image of a witch, Macbeth, if you're a Shakespeare fan, is one uh, very notable one. But just the iconic image of a witch around Samhain, Halloween, there's almost always in Dollar Trees and all sorts of shops, Spirit Halloween, etc., Tons of images of cauldrons and bubbling cauldrons. There's even a wax melt warmer that I saw at a big box store recently that was designed like a cauldron with a green bubbling brew coming out the top of it. I don't know why green brews are always the ones that they go with. But yeah, it's just a very iconic image and there's a reason for it. It, it was used a lot back in the day. Part of the history of potion and brew making is that what we refer to ourselves as witches now they may not have called themselves witches back in um, medieval times or you know hundreds of years ago they would have been known as wise people cunning people a lot of times it was people that didn't really fit into as you heard me say earlier in this show the in air quotes societal mold you know they didn't you couldn't find work you know in the village or something of that nature but they were very intelligent and wise as to the ways of the land they knew about the herbs they knew healing remedies they knew potions and brews that could be made you know different herbs that could be chewed or applied to the skin different things like that to help people and they oftentimes would do that not only to support themselves to make money to 
barter for food or supplies, but they would also do this for the village or the townspeople who could not afford to go to the apothecary or to pay you know, for what we consider now mainstream medicine. So they would go to someone like a cunning woman or a cunning man or a wise person in the village that they knew had the knowledge and the ability to make these types of things. Now, you can go back into the history of it as well. And even in some of the, what I would call medieval times recipes that I have looked at through some old text, there is some chanting and things like that involved. And I do believe that witches would have done that because they knew not only these herbs help with these things, but they knew why. They knew the nature of these herbs. They knew the power that they held magically and chanting and saying things in repetition as you add each ingredient, as you brew, that's going to add to that. It's just like with spell work, when you say something or you write on a petition paper what your intention is for that working, and you the entire time are visualizing and focusing intently on what you want to get out of the work that you're doing, and that is the same thing with you know chanting over a potion or brew. Now, I will say that, um, like I mentioned, you can do this in a lot of different uh, vessels. You can do this if you have just you know a normal enamel pot. I would recommend if you're going to do it with an enamel pot, don't use one that you use for cooking your regular food in um, because you may be doing different things and you want to keep not only separate because of safety reasons and allergy reasons and things like that. But you also, by keeping a certain vessel dedicated solely for potions and brews, it adds a little bit of oomph to that. It becomes a magical tool as opposed to just a pot. So that's my recommendation. Go out and get something and, and don't cheap out on it because you're going to be using it a lot possibly. Go ahead and get something that's going to last you a little while that's going to hold up. Also, you can use glassware, glass pots. I don't like using glass pots because one, if you do that, you've got to be very, very, very careful as to sudden temperature changes. You don't want to take a glass pot and sit it in the sink where there may be some cool water because it's going to crack. And hell, when I was a teenager and I was a chubby little thing, I wanted something sweet and couldn't find anything in the house. And so I decided I was going to make homemade caramel. I'd found it in a recipe book. And kids, recipe books are what we used to use for recipes before the internet came along because this was pre-internet. But I decided in a glass casserole dish on the stove burner to make this caramel and melt this sugar. And this dish got so, so, so hot. And then I sat it in the sink to cool off and it did. It cooled off so much that the glassware exploded, literally, and I had like dripping liquid sugar on the ceiling, on the walls, on the floors, luckily not so much on me. But yeah, it was a very dangerous situation, could have been anyway, and um, that's one of the dangers of, of using glassware. So just be very aware of that, and always, 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 whether it's an enamel pot or a glass pot or a coffee pitcher or an actual cast iron cauldron 
always, always use oven mitts or some sort of protective thing because they do get very hot when you're doing this. Now, as far as uh, the history, as I was talking about of potions, it goes back to what we consider ancient times. Uh, as I said, they used plant remedies for as long as humanity has existed, I'm pretty sure. And in that medieval age, potions were recorded down in detail for possibly the first time in history, or at least regularly recorded for the first time in history. So because of that, we kind of know what our ancestors thought and knew about the plants of that time. The first potions were kind of like concoctions or infusions or decoctions of certain herbs and plants that they knew could help cure the sick. It was kind of freely available to all people and every village just about had at least one kind of communal herbal garden. I won't say everyone, but most had something that, that the entire community could utilize, which is amazing. And now I see that popping up a little bit more in recent years. I, I wish that we would do it more often. But anyway, I digress. Potions, like I say back then, were made by witches, is what they later became known. But they were just healing potions for everyday people. I mean, if you couldn't afford to see a medieval doctor, you know, you could go to the wise person of the village and they might have a potion that they knew of that they could give you. You know, a lot of times, as, as I pointed out, they could have been outcast from society for something. They might not be able to do manual labor because of a disability, but they had an extensive knowledge of the plants and what type of properties they had. Oftentimes back, at least in the medieval times, there were monks who would be in monasteries and they would also make potions and herbs. And I'm not saying that they would do it so much in a magical sense, but they still did it. They still knew how to use these plants and herbs to make these different things that could heal and help nurture our bodies. Now, I've had people ask me before, okay, so if a potion is basically just, you know, a liquid with some herbs and you just kind of heat it up and then drink it, you know, what What makes it a magical potion or a magical brew? Basically, the best way to explain that is witches often know, and if you are new to the craft, you will quickly learn. All herbs have certain properties to them. Herbs just like us, just like trees, just like animals, just like anything, has an energy in it. And that's what we do when we're working magic. We're manipulating and wielding those energies and sending them out into the universe to do what we are intending for them to do. And, and it's really no different with herbs. We know that these herbs contain an essence, a life source. We also know if you study and read up on it and scott cunningham has some amazing books on this by the way but if you study herbalism and herbology especially the magical side of it and you're going to learn that each of these plants and herbs and barks and different things like that roots all have a magical quality that it can help imbue into any working that you're doing that's why some spell work wants you to you know 
put into a mortar and pestle certain herbs and sprinkle that onto a charcoal disc to burn while you're doing this spell. It's because the plants and herbs in that mixture all have a correspondence and all align together to add power to what you're doing. So when you're working with potions and magical brews, what you're doing is as you're adding each ingredient, and I'm going to get more in depth as to like the, the process and steps, but when you're adding each ingredient, you're taking each ingredient either in your hands or if it's too big, holding your hands over it. And you are focusing on your intention for what this potion or brew is going to be, what it's going to help. You know, if you're wanting something that's going to help with stomach troubles, you know, you are focusing on healing and comfort and, you know, the different colors that apply to healing and comfort. You're focusing on everything that you want to feel. You are visualizing that the entire time that you're holding each individual herb. You're imparting into it. You can whisper to the herbs. I do that all the time. I might look like a crazy person in my kitchen to someone that doesn't know what I'm doing. But I will often whisper to the herbs. If there's a certain chant that I'm doing, I'll whisper that to each one. I'll ask them to impart their power and their essence into the work that I'm doing. You do that with each individual item that you add to your potion or brew. And then once you put it all into the pot or the cauldron or the coffee maker or whatever you're doing it with, as that's brewing, you're also focusing and visualizing the same as you would do with a spell. As you're stirring, you can chant a certain chant that you have come up with that, you know, adds a little bit of mystique and also some intention into this working as well. And then when you're done, you can also do the same once you bottle it or put it in a jar or whatever else. A lot of them want you to drink them pretty quickly. Uh, some can be kept and used over time. But you, you do the same thing then. So it's all about intention. It's all about visualization. It's all about focusing on what you need and what you want. And that is what makes it a magical potion or a brew. That's kind of in a nutshell. I mean, it's a little bit deeper dive than that if you really want to get into it. But that, that's kind of how that goes. Now, there are, as I said, some medieval texts that kind of describe magical recipes in detail, a lot of them being like potions and brews and things of that nature. And just by reading it, you can often kind of imagine what their apothecaries might have looked like with different jars and bottles and things like that. Now, some of the ingredients are strange and the words they're using are words they used or names they used for different items of the day. And some of them aren't even known as to what it actually alluded to, uh, such as dragon's blood or unicorn horn. But while some are kind of out there with some weird ingredients, some are kind of ordinary and still used today to treat diseases some of the ingredients anyway, like wormwood or licorice root. To, to make potions, you kind of have to first understand the elements of the body, kind of what the body needs, what you're doing it for. You also want to kind of understand the properties of the particular herbs, plants, etc. that you're using within this potion or brew. Basically, you want to kind of look at correspondences and alignment. Correspondence, it, what that basically means in a nutshell is that this herb and this herb all lend to the intention you have for what you're wanting. So let's say you're trying to come up with something that is going to help with headaches. 
if you have two or three different herbs that kind of help with pain or with headaches or whatever, they correspond. And when all the herbs in like a spell or a potion or a brew correspond with one another, they're in alignment. And that means that they're just going to add a little bit. And you can get even further into it with planetary timing and, you know, everything else with spell work, which is a part of it. But for right now, for what we're looking at, uh, we just want herbs and things like that. You want to know how they correspond, all their different essences, what they add to what you're doing. I'm going to read off a few of these again. If you wanted, if you do potions and brews and you wanted to try this, it's entirely up to you. I've not actually put into use any of these, but um, I'll read some off. Let's say, for instance, dog bites. Take a handful of box, stamp it, strain it with a draught of milk, put into it a pretty quantity of lobster shell beaten to a powder, and some unicorn's horn if you can get it, and drink thereof and wash the wound therewith. <laughs> For stomach upset, take root of licorice, a few leaves of sage, branches of the willow, rose petals, fennel seed, a stick of cinnamon, ginger root, cloves, blood of a cormorant, three kinds of pepper, mandrake and dragon's blood, and infuse over the fire and drink. That one doesn't sound bad, actually. For burns, take a live snail and rub its slime against the burn and it will heal. Might actually try that one. For migraines, take half a dish of barley, one handful each of betony, vervain, and other herbs that are good for the head. And when they be well boiled together, take them up and wrap them in a cloth and lay them to the sick head and it shall be whole. For depression, squeeze the juice of the first buds of lilies. The odor of the flowers makes a person's heart joyful and furnishes them with virtuous ideas so again that's just some of the old school kind of uh, medieval texts that have had some potions and recipes and things like that there is another good book that i'm going to tell you about that i have read and i've gone back to it quite a lot and that is by it's called the witch's book of potions and it's by an author called michael fury f-u-r-i-e it's an amazing book. If you do want to get into potion and brew making, I highly suggest it. It's very kind of beginner friendly and kind of gives you a little bit of a history. And then also the components to potion and brew making, the differences in an infusion, which is typically what you would use for like your lighter, non-heavy herbs, or a decoction, which is like what you would do for your barks and roots and thick seeds and things like that. So a uh, very good book. I'm actually going to touch on a few things from his book. And then also I'm going to mention too, the complete book of, in I had to look at it. It's on my table right now, but the complete book of incense oils and brews by Scott Cunningham. Scott Cunningham was an amazing author. Uh, may he rest in peace. He left us some time ago, but uh, just put out countless books and just had an amazing grasp, particularly on magic in general, but particularly on herbs and brews and incense and magical oils and things like that. In that book, he does talk a little bit about uh, potion and brew making as well. Does give a pretty good intro into that also. And then he's got some other books too. The Encyclopedia of Herbal Magic, I think is what it's called. You'll have to, uh, don't hold me to that, but I'm not looking at that book. But he's got some amazing books. If you want to learn more about herbs and the magical 
benefits they have, then I would highly suggest picking up some of Scott Cunningham's books. And then again, Michael Fury has the Witch's Book of Potions, which is also, it's one of the few I've found that isn't full of a bunch of bullshit and just kind of blowing wind, you know, at you with a bunch of BS that they don't know anything about. You can tell that he kind of has a grasp on it. So, but basically we've talked about using an enamel pot. We've talked about using a glass pot and I've mentioned a couple times coffee maker and some of you might be like, what the fuck is he talking about? I don't want my brew to taste like my coffee and I get it. But when I say use a coffee maker, one, I would suggest not using the same one you use for coffee. Don't do that. But if you have, like, say you've upgraded, bought a new one, if you've got something new and you have an old coffee maker just sitting around, clean it really, really good and use that. Or if you want to start using a coffee maker, and that's more, I would say, suitable. I know a lot of friends that live in like studio apartments or loft apartments in cities and things like that. And they have to really maximize their space. They certainly don't have room for a cauldron out, you know, if they even have a balcony on their balcony and, uh, you know, their kitchens are typically kind of small as well. So they utilize this method and normally they'll go out and just buy like a little $20 coffee maker. So what you can do with that is the same thing that you can do with regular potions and brews, but instead of adding the ingredients into the pot or the cauldron, you would actually add it to like the filter compartment of the coffee maker and fill it with water. And as the water is pouring over these herbs, it's essentially doing the same thing that it would be doing in the pot or the cauldron. I don't like that method as my go-to, but I have used it on the fly in a pinch when I really needed something and didn't have my cauldron or my pot with me. So that is a method that can be used. Again, I would recommend not using one back and forth for potions and brews and also coffee and stuff like that. Uh, get one dedicated solely to that and make it a magical tool for that purpose. Now, getting into using a cauldron. Cauldrons are really cool. Cauldrons have a rich, rich history, uh, magically and otherwise. Basically, back in pagan times and olden times, medieval age, whatever you want to refer to it, if you walked into someone's home and didn't see a cauldron, it would be about like today walking into someone's home and there not being a TV or a laptop or a computer of some sort. It would be a little out of the ordinary because cauldrons were utilized for many things. They were utilized for cleaning. They were utilized for, you know, melting down lard and things like that. They were utilized for keeping the house warm, cooking, brewing, I mean, all sorts of things. So cauldrons were a commonplace item in most households. Now, cauldrons were typically back then constructed out of not what we see today mostly being cast iron a lot of them were made of plates of copper and bronze and iron occasionally silver and they were normally kind of riveted together to form a complete vessel cauldrons back then as i said were used for all sorts of purposes but they were also used in rituals and things like that as well and that's kind of what i'm going to talk about here there were ancient cauldrons that have been unearthed from bogs and rivers and burial chambers and do look to have been used as part of a ritual and for to be 
that jumped to my mind, four of the most notable ones are the Battersea Cauldron, the Basal Cauldrons, the Chiseldon Cauldrons, and um, the Gundestrup Cauldron. So the Battlesea Cauldron was recovered from the River Thames in the year 1861. I think it was believed to date from the late Bronze and early Iron Age, which would be like 800 to 700 BCE. It's constructed of seven different bronze sheets, and they were curved and riveted together, and it's got two handles as well. And then there was also the Basal Cauldrons. Uh, it was 2010. There was a large burial pit that was uncovered in Switzerland in which two of the Iron Age cauldrons were discovered among other metal and ceramic vessels, and they were thought to kind of have been buried as part of a ritual activity similar to cauldrons found in Britain which would be the Chiseldon cauldrons. In 2004, there were 12 different cauldrons from the Iron Age uncovered in a pit along with two cow skulls in Chiseldon, England. And they were apparently constructed of iron as well as copper. And they were believed to have been gathered together and buried again in like a ritual manner. And then there's the, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the Gundestrup cauldron. And that's arguably probably the most famous or well-known anyway of the ancient vessels. And it was unearthed from a peat bog in Gundestrup, Denmark in 1891. Now they think that one dates from around 150 BCE to 400 CE at some point in the early Roman Iron Age. And it's constructed of silver, has a lot of very detailed decorations and features. Some of the images on it include human faces, animals like deer or lions. Also, what's believed to be an image of Cernunos, the horned god. And uh, they took it apart, each of its pieces placed in the bog centuries ago. And again, what seemed to be an apparent ritual act. It was found in Denmark, but they think it's Celtic or some sort of origin like that, possibly created in an area where different people like the Celtic and Thracian people both live closely, maybe in Romania or Northwest Bulgaria. Now the silverwork is considered to be in the style of the Thracians of the time, whereas the images on the cauldron plates were very, very Celtic in appearance. And it's actually on display at the National Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen currently. That's just some of the more famous ones that have been found. And like I say, the ones that seem to be used in ritual senses, whether it be in burial rites or whether it be in a magical sense also. So there's a little bit of history, some cool trivia and facts about cauldrons in particular from the past. Also a little bit of a lens into what witches were back then or what we know as witches now and what they did. What they were doing, they weren't in the woods cackling over a cauldron, plotting against everyone in society. They were actually trying to help and be helpful. So now you're probably like, okay, that's all really interesting, Mike, but get to the juicy stuff. How do we make some potions and brews? Well, first of all, I will state again, I want you, if you don't know that much about herbology and different herbs, at least go buy a book that kind of goes over, you know, you'll find tons of books. Scott Cunningham has one that I reference all the time. I believe it's called the Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs. But 
if you get something like that, it's a good reference tool. Even if you don't know by memory what qualities a certain plant or herb or root or something has or possesses, you can quickly grab that book and flip to it and check. So I do recommend getting that. I do recommend reading it and trying to learn more about it, learn more about correspondences, alignment, learn more about planetary timing. And I am going to be touching on some of those topics in this season, but do the work before you just try to dive in and do a potion recipe, because you may have some success even not knowing a whole lot about it. But if you know the process in and out before you go into it, your workings will be a lot more powerful and a lot more successful. So what I'm going to do right now, I've, I've got some pages out of my book of shadows that out of my potion and brew making section. And I'm just going to kind of read over it because basically what it is is it just kind of gives you a general basic steps, almost like an actual recipe as to how to brew something. Now, of course, you would need to have the ingredients necessary and all that, but these are just some ideas that you can try. One, you're going to choose ingredients based on two main factors, and that's correspondence and alignment. Then you're going to gather all the ingredients Put them in separate containers and think like a cooking show, you know, how they have all the ingredients in different little dishes. If you have the space and the ability to do that, I highly recommend it. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. You're going to grab each ingredient separately into your hand and you're going to do what we were talking about earlier. You're going to focus on that. You're going to visualize your intention and your energy mingling with that of the plant or herb that you're using and coming together in unison to work towards the goal that you have in mind. You're going to do that with each ingredient. So it's a lot easier if you have them each in their own little container. You focus on that magical goal or intention, and then you're going to send the energy of that intention into each ingredient, visualize it mingling with the essence already in the item and will all to align with your goal or intent. When all the ingredients have been charged this way, they can be combined into a single vessel. And then when liquid is added to the pot or the cauldron, hold your hands over it and charge in the same way for the ingredients, adding that anything not in harmony with your goal or intent be neutralized. And then unless it instructs you otherwise with whatever recipe you're using, Heat the liquid until bubbles start to form on the bottom of the pot or the cauldron. And then that is when you're going to add any other ingredients at that point. Remove from heat. You're going to charge again that the completed mixture will manifest your intention. Cover, steep for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then strain. Now that's if you're doing an infusion. If you're using heavier plant materials like bark or roots or thick seeds, then you're going to do what is called a decoction and it may have to stay longer up anywhere from like 30, 45 minutes up to maybe several hours. I do know some brews, not many, but some that require you to steep that material for a very long time, simmering it at almost barely any heat for a day or two. Um, again, those are very rare. I don't use any of them, honestly, but they do exist. So that's what you're going to do uh, if you're making a potion. It's, if it's an infusion, it's lighter materials. It's going to be like steeped for about 10 to 15 minutes. 
if it's heavier, you know, bark, roots, seeds, you want to steep it until those things start to open up and release their essential oils or the different properties they have in there into the liquid. And then um, once you cover it, you've steeped it, you're going to let it cool. And then once it's cooled, you some of them tell you to drink it immediately while warm. Some of them tell you to bottle it and use it as needed. I will tell you the difference in a potion and a brew are two main things. A potion is something that you can ingest or drink or, you know, something of that effect. A brew is something that you do not ingest that is used externally, whether it be uh, on your forehead or on your arm or some brews are actually protection brews and you would dip your fingers into it and anoint your windows and doors and things uh, with the brew. You don't actually drink it. That's the difference uh, in a potion and a brew. And you always want to, before you give anything, even to yourself, that you have brewed or made up, you always want to check the ingredients and make sure that no one has an allergic reaction to them. If they're allergic in any sense, either omit that ingredient altogether or substitute it with something with a similar correspondence, or just don't give it to the person that has that allergy. You always wanna be very safe and you also want to only extend that to people that actually are receptive to it that want you to help them. You don't wanna just, brew up a potion and go drop it off at somebody's door and say, hey, drink this, because they may be a little apprehensive with good reason at that point. And that is pretty much it. Um, uh, like I say, it's an, you can dive really deep into this topic, as you can with most things, if you want to. And if you are interested in this topic, I highly suggest you do so. If you need some ideas for like reading material, or if you need to know where to get a cauldron, uh, I do have some places I can direct you to to get some really good quality ones at a reasonable price. Uh, it has nothing to do with me. It's just places that I have found in my own experience. But I will tell you, if you're going to get a cauldron for this purpose, make sure it is a food safe cauldron. And if you get a cauldron, I'll tell you real quickly how to go about seasoning that. Basically, when you get a cauldron, you're going to want to take like a Brillo pad or a scouring pad of some sort, and you want to, without soap, just use warm water, no soap, but you're going to want to scrub really vigorously the outside, the inside, all the edges. And what you're doing is getting any type of uh, chemicals or anything like that from the factory off of it, as well as any sharp edges or anything of that nature. Now, once you've done that, rinse it really, really well dry it real good and then take either some paper towel or some cheesecloth or something like that and use either shortening or what I like to use coconut oil and you're going to cover every inch outside and in including handles lids feet anything you want to cover everything in this oil pretty generously and then what you're gonna do is you're gonna turn your oven on about 350 you're gonna put this cauldron upside down on like some sort of cookie sheet or something like that with like maybe some wax paper, parchment paper under it. And you're going to leave it in there for, I don't know, at least an hour, hour and a half. When you're done, you're going to open your oven, let it cool down a little bit, very carefully with oven mitts or some sort of protective coverings on your hands, grab that pot out. It's going to be extremely hot. 
let it cool down enough. And then once it's cool enough, you can take a dry paper towel or a dry cheesecloth and blot out and pat down any excess oil. Let it cool completely. And once that's done, you're good to go. Going forward from that, do not ever wash this pot with soap. Soap will deteriorate the seasoning because anytime you need to clean it, you're going to just use a scrub pad, some warm water, that's it. You won't really, if you care for it well, you don't let it stay wet and you know anything. This is also going to keep it from rusting, but if you care for it well, dry it off when you're done, things like that, you should only have to do this seasoning process once at most twice a year. Take good care of it. It'll take good care of you. Make sure it's food safe. Make sure you season it well. If you can't fit it in your oven and you have like an outdoor grill with a lid, you can do that. But again, if you have any questions about books or places to find a good cauldron or places to find herbs, any of that, always hit me up. You can email me. You can hit me up at Son of a Witch Pod on Instagram. So it's been my pleasure, my absolute honor to be back on the air for all of you again. I can't wait for this season. I've got so many fun ideas and topics in store, some really cool guests and lots of fun things that we're going to do. New segments, all sorts of stuff. Here pretty soon, I'm going to be talking about all sorts of different body butters and bath teas and milk baths and all sorts of stuff that I'm making. And it's all magically infused according to the proper planetary timing. It's amazing. I'm going to have a magical line of teas, which is also equally amazing. And the name that I have picked out is just, oh, I'm, I'm in love. So anyway, this has been a little bit of a longer episode than normal. I apologize for that. And I'm going to go ahead and shut up now. So thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be back to our 45 minute to an hour type time frame. And then each week thereafter, I'll have more coming. So blessed be. I'll talk to you soon.